This is the Cogent Code podcast, logical and convincing standards or rules to live by in today's society. This is Jordan Vectemba, Akil Vectemba's oldest daughter and legacy. Welcome to the Cogent Code podcast. Today, we're talking about the notorious RBG. This episode is about women's rights and why we see a resurgence in the movement. The life, contributions, and decisions of Ruth Bader Ginsburg as a champion for women and why she was named the notorious RBG. Let's get into it. Yeah, so um, we actually, this is so interesting because the Urban Dictionary had a definition for Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and I was really, really impressed by it. So uh, it says Ruth Bader Ginsburg was a badass woman who has done incredible things for women's rights and was a huge factor in the strides women have taken. She was serving on the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court until she passed away on September 18th and is just the embodiment of what it means to be a strong woman. And so, you know, it's, it's funny because um, she also became like an adjective, right? So when, when somebody said something that was strong and in, in, uh, support for women's rights, they would say, you sounded like a Ruth Bader Ginsburg, mm-hmm. right? Or RBG. And uh, what's interesting about uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, I think, and in, in people may or may not know uh, about why um, she's such a symbol for women's rights, but um, she uh, was on the Supreme Court. She was not the first woman on the right. Supreme Court, but there was a period of time on the court where she was the only woman. Um she followed uh, Sandra Day O'Connor uh, as uh, they were both on the court at the same time. And then she ended up um, being on the court um, in the 1990s on her own. Uh, but she was a very phenomenal woman. And I think that uh, one thing that set her, set her apart and kind of made her like one of the symbols of the women's rights movement was that um, she started at the ACLU, uh, the women's right um a portion of the ACLU that really uh, went after cases and really laid the foundation and the groundwork for some of the legislation and some of the decisions that we saw that came out of women's rights. Um, uh, and, and she believed on um, building kind of uh, the law based on, on case law. And she was really smart the way she did it. I'm going to get into some facts about her life a little bit later, but um, she, she really was smart about the way she did it because she chose a lot of the time to pick cases in which a male was the actual plaintiff mm. to prove that by not protecting a woman's right, you were actually hurting men as well. Oh, wow. And that is kind of how she flipped the script. And a lot of people compared Ruth Bader Ginsburg to Thurgood Marshall. Mm-hmm. Because if you remember the fights for civil rights, um, especially with African Americans, he did the same right. thing. They kind of built case law um, that built upon one principle and the next principle and the next principle and kind of took pieces out of uh, and took the sting out of um, discrimination through the law by taking it piece by piece. Mm -hmm. Ruth Bader Ginsburg did the same thing and she kind of dismantled some of the um, 
the laws that were against women's rights by kind of being very smart about the way she did it and kind of dismantling it. So really a champion of women's rights. Did you know anything about uh, or a lot about Ruth Bader Ginsburg before I get into kind of her life? Um, I did know. I, I did know who she was. Um, I did recognize, you know, especially like like you said, during the 90s, her being, um, you know, the only one for a, for a good significant out of actually amount of time and the kind of weight that that had to hold, you know, um, especially on the U.S. Supreme Court, you know, and the fact that, you know, there is, you know, she was the deciding vote, um, you know, on on many, many, many cases. Uh, and she was, you know, constant and undeniable. And, you know, and, you know, like you said, you can get you know, RBG, if you, you know, if you, if you're not careful, you know, she was putting it, she was putting right. it down like that. So I do know that. And I, and, and I, and I just want to say that, um, you know, she's, you know, has a sort of celebrity in the fact that she was who she was, but, um, you know, I know that I felt actually, I felt the, you know, without being too dramatic, you know, I felt the earth shake when she, past. You know, I felt the earth shake when, um, when our, our beloved, um, you know, get into good trouble, right. Um, passed very recently. John Lewis. Lewis. Yeah, yeah. You know, and, and so I, um, you know, I'm just, I, I'm, I'm very sad that she's gone, but I think that this is a perfect opportunity for us to speak about her in not only recognition, but in celebration. Yeah, I think some pioneers to to what you're kind of alluding to, some pioneers for justice and for uh, equal rights have passed just in, in, in the recent uh, year. You know, in 2020, it's been a hell of a, a, a year as, as we keep we keep talking about. And we're seeing some big titans, mm-hmm. you know, rest in power. Okay. Right. We always say rest in power because they 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 were individuals that were born um and have had made such an impact on uh, American life uh, that it, it's undeniable. But um, what people may not know is that Ruth Bader Ginsburg's name is actually Joan oh. Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Okay. And there's a little bit of a story. She was born on March 15th of 1933 and uh, was an American jurist who served as an associate justice of the Supreme Court of the United States from 1993 until her death in in 2020. Um, and I, I'm going to just kind of talk about why we don't call her Joan Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Right. Her mother, um, so uh, when she enrolled her in school, she noticed that there were a lot of uh, children named okay. Joan. So she didn't want uh, Ruth not to be an individual. So she basically uh, called her Ruth instead of calling her first name Joan. So then she was named Ruth. She had a little sister who ended up dying of meningitis, mm-hmm. but uh, her little sister also, she had a nickname, uh, uh, Kiki, because she what, she was a baby I, that kicked mm-hmm. a lot, I guess. And so uh, she also had that sweet nickname. But anyways, I'm kind of going into her life. Um, she she um, was nominated by President Bill Clinton. Right. And she has always been viewed as pretty much part of the liberal wing of the court. Mm-hmm. So a lot of people know that there are conservative justices and there's also liberal justices. Um, 
Ruth was on the liberal side of the court, but a, a lot of the time, especially when President Clinton um, picked her, she was seen as a mm-hmm. moderate, right? There were decisions that she made that um, some people felt were a little bit more on the conservative side. And there was decisions she made that were definitely more on the liberal side, but she was seen as the moderate and she um, was recommended uh, to build Clinton um, to be placed on the court because of her moderate views kind of being in the middle of the road. Um, She was the second woman ever to serve on the, uh, uh, the U S Supreme court after Sandra day O'Connell, like we mentioned earlier. And during her tenure, she wrote a lot of uh, notable opinions, United States v. Virginia, Olmstead v. LC friends of earth v. Laidlaw environmental services um, and between O'Connor's retirement in 20, uh, uh, 2006 and the appointment of Sonia Sotomayor in t- 2009, she was the only female justice on the Supreme Court during that time. And, and Ginsburg became more forceful with her dissents, especially during that time. And she was asked one time, um, how many women would be enough on the Supreme mm. Court? And she basically said, Nine. Wow. Nine would be enough because she said that. Well, not only that, but she said when a court is all male, nobody questions that. Right. right. And the court had always been all male until Sandra Day O'Connor came along. But why is it when when you were asking about a, a, a female, about how many people she thought as female should be on the court? Her answer was nine because. There were nine men for so long. Why is it any question as to how many women should hold that place? Mm -hmm. Um, So she was born in Brooklyn, New York. Uh, Like I mentioned, she had an older sister. She died. Um, uh, And then her mother also died when um, she was about to graduate or just graduated from high school. Um, She earned her bachelor's degree at Cornell University and married Martin D. Ginsburg, who was also uh, he ended up being a lawyer as well and worked at a very um, prominent uh, law firm. Uh, she became a mother before starting law school at Harvard. She actually had um, started law school in Harvard. And there was a very interesting story about uh, uh, how many um, women were in the Harvard class that she entered. I believe there was about nine okay. women that were in that mm-hmm. class. Um, she was invited uh, to uh, a dinner when she first started uh law school by the dean at harvard and at that dinner uh, he they basically said to all the women at that dinner um did you were you aware that you took a slot that was reserved for wow. a man and so she uh decided to leave mm-hmm. and she transferred to columbia law school partly because of her her marriage right. where she was going right. to go but uh but she graduated um, first in her class with with another individual. They were both top of the class. And after law school, Ginsburg, uh, she decided to become a professor. Mm-hmm. So she was a professor at, at Rutgers Law School, Columbia Law School, and she taught civil procedure as one of the very few women in the field. Wow. So for those of you who don't know, civil procedure is it teaches you how to file suits and the rules in which you you have to uh, follow in order to make sure that you're filing correctly. Um, She spent much of her legal career as an advocate for gender equality and women's rights. And she, before she actually joined the Supreme court, she actually had argued 
in front of the Supreme Court, mm-hmm. right? Uh, she And she advocated as a volunteer attorney for the American Civil Liberties Union and was a member of its board of directors of its general counsel in the 1970s. And then in the 1980, President Carter appointed her to the U.S. Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia, um, where she served uh, until her appointment to the Supreme Court, and she vacated that seat. Uh, She received attention in American popular culture for her fiery liberal dissents, and she was playfully named uh, the notorious RBG by a law student, actually, uh, as a reference to the late Brooklyn-born rapper Notorious okay. B.I.G., as you as you guys might know, and she embraced the moniker. Um, she died, as people may know by now, on September 18th of 2020 at the age of 87 from complications of cancer. She actually had cancer five yeah. times. Uh, so she she um, and, and what people may not know is when President Obama was in office they had asked whether or not she would retire to vacate her seat so that they could appoint another liberal justice during that right. his presidency. And she didn't want okay. to, she wanted to continue on. And some people believe she held on uh, and, and still serve. She said, as long as she could still serve with her full okay. mind that she was going to serve on the court. And some people feel that she held on and she was trying to hold on this last bout of cancer uh, until after the election. And she is known for saying that her, her last wish basically is that they wait until uh, a new president is, is appointed. Um, And one of the things I think I kind of want to go into before we kind of just go back and forth about the women's movement and, and, and why maybe Ruth Bader Ginsburg picked this as her cause. Um, But um, when President Obama was president, 100 days before uh, he vacated the office, uh, Antony Scalia That's died. Right. And um, they prevented him from getting his appointment because uh, Mitch O'Connell said, uh, Mitch McConnell said, I'm sorry, that um, he was a lame duck president right. because the Senate was Republican Senate and he was a uh, obviously a uh, democratic president. And so therefore he shouldn't have the right to have an appointment before he left office. It was too short before he was yeah. going to leave office. And he actually appointed Rich- Garland, but they would never even see him for, for an, uh, uh, the hearing. Exactly. And so now it's 45 days at the date that um, Ginsburg passed away. Um, and they're, they're pushing forward and they're saying that they're going to appoint somebody and place them in a seat. Now, one of the things that I I just have to say again, and I know we said it on another podcast is that I think people need to realize that when you appoint, when you, when you elect a president, there are, there is power in that election that exceeds and goes far beyond um, just that president's four Mm -hmm. years. Or eight years, it goes. It, it actually, you know, has an impact that's far beyond that. I think uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg served on the court for twenty-seven yeah. years, right? So that exceeded several presidencies, right. right? She was appointed by Clinton, and and so it, it really can make the decision. A lot of the major decisions that we have were five-four decisions, right. right? There are nine justices on the court. Uh, a lot of times it can swing five to four. Um, and um, when the balance of the court is disrupted, right, 
And that doesn't mean that because you have liberal justices or conservative justices that they all agree on everything at the same split. But there are some that they call swing votes where you have a justice that you don't know which way they're going to go. You have some solid votes on one side or the other. But I think some of the beauty of the court and the evolution of uh, of law is that you do want both sides to be uh, debating right about what's best for America, because there's all people who inhabit America, both uh, liberal and conservative and moderate, right? If we're arguing that some people are swing votes um, on the court. And so I think the loss of Ruth Bader Ginsburg uh, is going to be one to watch and what they do about it and whether or not they respect her memory and her wishes and allow for whoever the new president is, uh, or if it ends up being Trump again, that they wait and and give her the respect that I think she deserves that we gave to Antonio Scalia. Um, uh, But it's just my wish. So what do you think about some of the things that I kind of highlighted about her life? Amazing. Um, And, and, you know, just to think, just to go back to what you were saying about the fact that she is also a mother, um, you know, to, to, to be, um, you know, as effective and as as powerful as she was um, as a person, and then and then as obviously a lawyer, as obviously a a justice, um, to also be a mother, I could just imagine what those, uh, you know, what taking that robe off at the highest court in the land, you know, and for many for you know for a number of years being the only woman at the highest court of the land, you know, what what that was coming home. You know, and and uh, spending time yeah. with her her child. Um, you know, I think that obviously the all the rest of it is is you know incredibly documented. You just ran through um, you know with a whole lot of grace because that was a lot of material. Um, you know, her her life and her background. You know, up to the up to her death to a certain degree. Um, but that's one of the things that that I'm interested in. You know, maybe finding more about on my own. Um, just kind of how her how she was, you know, personally and how she was. I know that she had a, um, you know, I've seen interviews. She had a really, uh, a lot of wit, uh, you know, a really great sense of humor. You know, you see her laughing a lot. Um, but she was a very, very serious person, obviously. And uh, and so, you know, it's, it's really nice to kind of get a little bit deeper into, uh, as we enter into the next kind of phase in this conversation about the uh, women's rights and her impact on on that. But um, but just her as a person, she seemed like, you know, someone you definitely wanted to have a conversation with um, that you could probably learn, you know, in five minutes, learn a whole lot. And, uh, you know, and then kind of just back her up. I know I was saying towards the end there, especially since July, when she was really going back and forth into the hospital quite a bit. um, And there was a lot of unsure, you know, I was very unsure about, you know, how she was she was going to do and how she was doing. You know, I was like. I'll do security for her. I'll feed her her soup. <laughs> you know, I'll do whatever, you know, we just, we gotta, we gotta, you know, help her to hang on and, and, you know, continue to fight the fight. Um, so, you know, let's jump into, let's jump into it. Um, you know, RBG was dope. Yeah. You know, she was dope. And, and one other thing I just want to highlight is that her husband also got cancer when um, they were both in law school and, um, she had two kids at the time and she not only attended class, but she took care of the family and she, 
uh, wrote his papers and her papers, both of their papers, and 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 turned them in so that they both were able to graduate. And I just think that you know, just a phenomenal uh, woman. You know, yeah. uh, she was the only uh, at the time, obviously one of the only women, but she also was Jewish. Mm-hmm. So, you know, uh, definitely the only Jewish uh, woman that held, uh, that, that place in the court. And so, and she just, just really just a trailblazer in so many ways and just such a spirit to, to what you said, uh, really one of the, uh, one of the people that, uh, I look up to from a legal perspective as mm-hmm. well. Um, her and Thurgood Marshall, but, but let's talk a little bit about um, the women's rights movement, right? So we've, we've seen uh, a resurgence in the, in the last couple of years of a real movement for women's rights. And I have participated, I think I've talked about it before in two of the last three years, women's marches, um, because I really think that uh, a lot of the cases and a lot of the laws across the land have started to take a little bit of a turn. Mm-hmm. And women are very, very concerned about uh, what the future of their uh, rights to their bodies and choice means. And also um, uh, some of the gaps in pay, we still see women make uh, 75 cents on every dollar. Um, that's a white woman to a white mm-hmm. male, 75 cents on every dollar. As you get into women of color, it drops even lower. I think it's about 57 cents or something uh, to that extent. But but uh, definitely still disparities that we see that we can point right. to. Um, and, and so why do you think that the women's movement has come back and is had a resurgence? Well, I, I think you know, certain things are the catalysts. Um, you know, when the, let's just start with the, you know, when legislators, uh, when a room full of, um, you know, middle-aged, older, you know, a homogenous room, <laughs> you know, um, is of males are in place to determine the rights of women women stand up obviously and i think that i think that that has happened more and more in the last you know last number of years um than ever before and so uh you know i think the resurgence comes from um you know the recognition that if we don't we're really going to be pushed back or thrown back you know decades as far as our rights, you know, I mean, we, you know, you go back to the suffrage movement, you know, what was that, what was that resurgence or that not resurgence, but surgence about, right. That was, you know, women's right to vote. And the fact that women should be voting at the same capacity and at the same rights as, as, as men. And so, you know, I think that we've, we've come back around. So the resurgence is, you know, is like you said, you know, who's going to be able to determine what, what, you can do with your body, what is covered under insurance, what is, you know, um, you know, which direction you can go. And, and, and just the, the, the most egregious, I wouldn't, from my perspective, one of the most egregious, I should say is equal pay. Are you serious? Mm -hmm. Like, you know, I have, I have wife and two daughters, right? I have mom, I have aunts, I got cousins, you know, I have friends, you know, um, and I and and I can't imagine, you know, that 
you know, there's a male counterpart in any of their world that they're doing the exact same job and probably in, a, in many times better and are making 75 cents on the dollar or worse. Well, but not only that, I think what we, as a society, what we need to look at is the rate of divorce yeah. in this society, right? So we have a high rate of divorce. Um, some people believe it's about 70%. So, which means that there are a lot of single moms raising kids, mm-hmm. right? And um, to go further for some of the, the men that feel a little scorched by the child support system, right? Mm. You you have um, – that is based on an income determination, right, and in the best interest of the child. So that's based on the total income – in the household that it would be if the parents were not separated, like what quality of life would that individual mm-hmm. have that child mm-hmm. have? If, if, if a, a female makes less than mm-hmm. a man, just, this is just this kind of a Ruth Bader Ginsburg type of analysis right. for, for those of you who are Come listening. But if, if you, if you're not going to pay women the same that you pay men, but yet we have a high rate of divorce and women are raising their children mm-hmm. separately in separate households. It still comes back to the fact that now men are going to have to support or at least give additional support. That's the yeah, that's Although the they flip. should be taking care care of it, they should be taking care of their kids, no question about it. Please don't throw tomatoes at me. I I I am a single right, mom, right. right? So I'm not saying that they shouldn't be taking care of their kids, but I'm just saying that it all comes back to the fact that you the, the children are being re- reared um in this society where we're at now, a lot by women in a single household, which needs to support children. So by us not allowing women to get paid equally, it's not doing anything but setting us all back, right? And our children, right? And and so it's just something that I think is archaic. And one of the things about Ruth Bader Ginsburg, uh, you know, again, is that when she graduated from law school, no one would hire her. There were clerkships, that she had gone for where she was highly recommended and she was denied those clerkships because men did not want a woman lawyer to be working with them. So there was no, she, so she felt the sting of gender inequality, you know, a lot in her, in her lifetime. So do you think that she has seen it over and over and again? Do you think that that had, um, I guess the men not wanting because they know that, that one that they're threatened were they threatened by the by by her um and and you know those like her or were they uh or were they afraid of precedence that once we open the door we can't stop the flood you know and so it it you know it's it's you know that whole thing is is incredibly interesting to me but i i think that you know using or at least listening to you talk about it you know when you talked about being, you know, RBG'd, that's the flip, right? That's the, you know, making the argument to, you know, to to kind of spread the risk if you don't decide right on this, right? I mean, the, the risk is that, you know, you're going to be having, you know, as men, you have to come, you know, particularly to the, to the uh, child support issue, you're going to have to come out of pocket even more because you're not paying the women equally, right? Well, I don't think they think about it that way. And I think, you know, to to answer your question, I think that there have been historically a lot of law 
so on the books, um, I took women in law in law school. Uh, so I, I'm speaking pretty, uh, you know, with, with some knowledge yeah, behind this obviously. topic. Um, the, the thing is, is that there have been uh, laws on the books uh, as recently as the 1970s. OK, mm-hmm. so people don't say, well, it was so long ago. Right. None of us have been right. affected. People on this on this call have been, I was born in 1975. So, you know, there were laws on the books that said you could beat a woman with something that was as thick as your thumb. They, they, women could not own property, property unless they were married. Um, There's, there's, so there, you know, there was laws that had to be passed that said women could own property and then ended up trying to reverse the fact that um, if a woman own property separately and apart from her husband, it had to be labeled that way in the, in the, in the, in the which, deeds to which, that property which gave it less value. Right. Right. But, but I, I think to answer your, your question, I think as women started to become more educated, mm-hmm. there was a fear that there was going to be a, uh, a breakdown in the American household, right. A big, a breakdown in, right, in family structures, right, right. A, a break, a, a breakdown for men in in, in, in control of that family right. structure. Um, I, I think that there were many reasons why we potentially could have had um, some of those laws on the books as long as we did um, and, and not really wanting women to become independent in, in certain ways. Um, I think there's a lot of people that still believe that that um, because women are able to be educated and women are able to have good jobs and make a substantial amount of money, that there is an impact on the family mm-hmm. unit. Um, Cheryl Sandenberg, uh, who wrote um, Lean In, that, right. that famous right. book, um, she talks about it a little bit in, in her book as well. And she talks about how, um, you know, there's... It, you know, there's still a thought about, you know, mm-hmm. women and, and their contributions, what they can be and, and, and just the family structure and how it, it can change when women become more independent. So I think there was fear. Mm-hmm. I think behind everything, there's fear. And I think that um, the breakdown of the family potentially could be, you know, some people can think it's because of the independence and maybe not accepting something to just be what it is because you can't right. leave. Right. But I also think that instead of just blaming it on the fact that people are becoming more educated or they have options, I think we need to raise the bar on how we treat That's each right. other so that it's, it's not something that we want, right, from a family unit, that we make an active decision to make a commitment to see the situation through and rise and be the best humans we can be in a relationship and how we relate to other people instead of saying, well, I, I'm just going to make it so a person is not independent enough to be able to seek it, it out, seek something out on their own. I don't think that that's really, I don't, I don't think that's really where we should be going with that thought process. Right. right? So when you talk about the, um, you know, we're talking about the women's movements, you know, of the past and present. Um, I think it's also very interesting to kind of point out that, you know, women's suffrage and, you know, going back to those times and, and, the women's movement at that point, um, they left out really a whole segment of the population, right? So, so those those movements were for particularly a certain section of the population to be able to get the rights. Now, um, 
I think the difference between that and now is that the women's movement is led by, you know, uh, multiple ethnicities, you know, multiple levels of education, multiple levels, multiple ages, you know, and I think that that it's much um, that it's power now is in the fact that um, that there's a there's a recognition that, um, you know, these changes and these things that need to go into uh, into law must be uh, accessible and uh, attainable by all women. You you get what I'm saying? Like, I, I, I felt like um, I felt like now that, you know, uh, you know, when you talk about, uh, like you just said, um, pay equality, right? Wage equality. Um, you know, when you did the statistics, you talked about, you know, the comparison from income from white men to white women. And the fact mm-hmm. that, you know, if you make that some, that same comparison from white men to black women or, you know, Latin women or Asian women or whatever, you know, the, the whole kind of global, um, you know, makeup of women and how that, how that relates and that number changes. Right. And so I think that now that's more recognized than ever, you know, maybe because the access of information and just people are more savvy and more, you know, interested in, in finding out more about what it is. But I think that it's, you know, the, the 2020 uh, women's movement is much stronger, much more diverse and will in the end be much even even more effective or even, you know, will carry the torch, obviously, um, than previous women movements. Yeah, no, I, I think that to your point, I think what everyone has to remember, and I think even um, when we talk about BLM, where people may or may not agree with BMF, BLM, the thing is, is that when there is a movement, mm-hmm. whether or not you're that color, white women in, included in this particular topic, but when there is a movement, um, even though you, the person leading the movement or the person that may have the most influence in the movement may not share the color mm-hmm. of your skin or may not share your same demographic, they're bringing all of us up mm-hmm. with them, to be mm-hmm. honest, right? And I think that that is something that um, we really need to understand and we really need to get behind. And I think that that's part of, um, you know, part of the reason why I, I find it a little bit troubling um, that we don't understand that, or we don't consider that um, we, we kind of grab onto what we don't like about right. everything. You know what I mean? And and we'll, we'll say, well, I don't want to, you know, I, I don't agree with that. So I'm going to, you know, fight against this movement. But the thing is, is it's, or I don't agree that it's dealing with white women or it's dealing with mm-hmm. black women or it's dealing with this. The thing is, is that we all benefit from the changes because they're not going to say uh, equal pay should only be for white right. women. They're going to say women deserve equal pay, mm-hmm. right? And all the rest of us are, are part of that discussion. There was a, a case that... Uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and this is why she's called RBG, dissented pretty uh, loudly uh, about. And then there was a, 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 
uh, Fair Pay Act that comes in after. But in Letter Better v. Uh, Goodyear, which was in 2007, um, it was a gender uh, discrimination case, a Title VII uh, discrimination case. And um, they they set limitations on um, equal pay. And in, in that um, a, a majority opinion, they basically said that, yes, equal pay could be challenged, but it had to be challenged at the time that the pay was disproportionate, mm-hmm. basically. So you had to have knowledge of the pay being unequal. And so Ruth Bader Ginsburg said that that's absurd. Right. She dissents and she says that that's absurd, pointing out that women often do not know that that's they're being right. paid less. And therefore, it's unfair to expect them to act at the time of each paycheck. If you don't know you're being paid less, how can you take an action? Um, She also talked about um, how there's reluctance that women may have in entering fields that um, are male dominated, right? right? Which would make them not file suits in those type of fields. Um, And so uh, there was going to be more of a disparity that accumulates and accumulates in different fields, right? Because you wouldn't be able to have women who knew that they got paid less and you might not have women that are in that field Mm -hmm. at all. And I think what people need to remember is dissenting opinions. um, And obviously I'm geeking out a little bit here, but dissenting opinions are what you actually see are used later to challenge different parts of law. So a different case may come up that is on a different issue, right? That is being looked at. And it's, they use the dissent of justices that are still sitting on the court or justices that have been on the court to kind of prepare Amherst briefs in their, I'm not going to get into legal terms, but, but the briefs and other things in support of the the case. So, because every time a case comes in front of the uh, Supreme Court is the rule of four. Four justices have to want to right. hear the case for it to make it to the Supreme Court. So there's a lot of stuff that goes into having these cases be heard. But um, in her dissent, because she said that about Title VII, um, in 2008, uh, following the election of President um, Barack Obama, there was the Lilly uh, Ledbetter Fair Pay mm-hmm. Act, making it easier for employees to win pay discrimination cases. Uh, right. claims and it became law and it was largely because people felt that it was inspired by her dissent in that case and basically pointing out that although the majority opinion was what it was it really didn't serve um its purpose you know she you know she just really made a big difference in a lot of cases by you know saying that the way that the law was decided that it just wasn't really quite fitting you know, that they didn't think about the other aspects of how it can affect people. But what we've also seen in the last couple of years is the Me Too mm-hmm. movement. So what do you think about the Me Too movement? Because I've, I've had some guys have some interesting conversations with me about the movement and just kind of their thoughts on it. So what do you think about the Me Too? Yeah, I, I um, you know, I, I in a lot of these these parts of our conversations, obviously, I kind of I'm more in a an observer, right? And maybe an active observer. But I, I, you know, from from where I sit, you know, I think that uh, it's another, you know, it's another thing that's that's been, you know, well overdue. You know, the fact that that um, you know men have utilized their positions of power to uh, take advantage and demean and you know um, 
you know, women for decades and for, you know, throughout our history, um, it had to come to a head that there was needed to be a time of reckoning that, you know, this too must end. And, uh, and I think, you know, I'm actually, um, glad for it because I have daughters that are coming up. Right. So I have a 16 year old and a 10 year old. And if, you know, if movements like the me too movement take hold and change law and protect, you know, protect the future generations, uh, I'm all for it. You know, I think that, um, you know, but I think that everybody gets held to account. And I think that it's very important that that happens. Um, but I think that the Me Too movement, one thing is that I think that it needs to be equally distributed. I think that if it's going to be, you know, one one group of people, it needs to be, a, a you know, everybody needs to, to catch it if anybody's going to catch it. And so um, I think that that's important as well. I just feel like... Um, I feel like 2020 has been a <laughs> amazing and that that Me Too movement probably was is a couple years old at this point. But, yeah. Um, yeah. but you know, it gained its it gained momentum. And, uh, you know, I think it's a significant piece of the overall women's movement. You know, I think the kind of the basis of the Me Too movement, um, especially around sexual harassment and, and those areas in the workplace and in, you know, in business and in those in any of those areas um, had to be addressed. And I'm glad that it it has been. Yeah, I think um, one of the points is uh, when the Me Too movement did start taking hold, um, there was a campaign on the Internet that basically just said me too, right? Like it, and um, I've shared in, in, in another podcast that um, I ha- was the victim of uh, a molestation. Right. And um, so it also encompassed, you know, those type of um, victims. Right. And so the thing is, is what was really striking to me at the time is how many of my friends said mm-hmm. me too. Right. Um, because I think there's a lot of shame behind um, those type of things, uh, women feel uh, like they shouldn't say anything, that they should be keeping it to themselves or, you know, um, sometimes the line of consent is uh, is blurred for women sometimes. And they, you know, maybe uh, have gotten to a physical situation and said stop. And it's already taking, you know, it's already taking a, a turn. Uh, and, and it's unclear to them whether or not they said stop loud enough or, or whatnot. So I, I think it, it was a very interesting time to see how many uh, young ladies also said me too. But on the flip side of that, um, and I'm going to say it for you because I know it's probably more difficult as a man to, to have this conversation, is that I did have some of my guy friends say to me like, well, it's really scary now to go to work because I don't even want my door closed when a woman's in the thing because I don't want them to say because I don't know if you remember a lot of uh, males, uh, professional males were getting oh, abused. Yeah. Of the, and it was taking down their careers, yeah. right? And, and, and maybe rightfully so. But I, I had a lot of my guy friends who know I speak very freely about my my, my views right. have conversations with me about, you know, like, should I keep my door open? Like, am I going to be me too? I mean, just really worried about just acting awkward around mm-hmm. women. Um you know, not really knowing what to do um, when it came to uh, what it meant, like what was completely the definition of harassment, right? right? Like, were they flirting? You know, um, 
I, I think it, it, it's it, for men, it's an uncomfortable conversation to have because I don't know if they always know where the, yeah, I, I think, um, I think a couple things. I think if you really listen to the me too movement, um, kind of just generally speaking, if you really listen to what it's about, it's about sexual abuse, sexual abuse, right. And, and definitely sexual harassment, but really sex crimes and sexual abuse and, and utilizing um, a person's power, you know, and influence to damage someone else's life or, you know, offer reward, right. Which is damaging them as well because they're selling, you know, basically you put yourself in a position to sell yourself, you know, against your wishes to this, you know, whatever this end is. So I think that, you know, I think that if men, you know, and, and, and speaking for myself as an, you know, observer of this, um, is that, you know, I think if you know, um, if you look at the ones that have been the targets of the Me Too movement, which rightfully so should be targets of the movement, right? Um, they, you know, they, they sexually abused women. They, you know, like I said, used their power and influence, which is like obviously the key in sexual harassment cases, but um, they use their, their power and influence to weld, you know, to, to basically say if your career, if you want a career, you know, you want a livelihood in something that you are about, then you have to perform this, that, or the other. And um, so I think that for us, you know, cause I, I kind of had some of those, I've had some of those conversations and I've also, you know, done some real like introspection on myself, like, you know, over the last 20 years, like, have I, you know, not been cool? Have I, you know, given, you know, any of those um, kind of any, anything on that list, um, you know, towards anybody. And, you know, and I think the thing is, is that, that if you know that you are, um, you know, kind of on the right side of that, then you'll be okay. But the other thing though, is that I think the fear that men really went through is, um, those that they may not have done that, done anything overtly to, but that may have a reason to come after them. Right. And so, so, you know, I think, you know, unfortunately, like any, any other movement, you know, some of the movement was co-opted, you know, by, by women that, you know, really want to take advantage of the opportunity, you know, there's opportunities out there on everything, um, take advantage of the opportunity to, um, you know, go after men that it, they either wanted to pursue, didn't, you know, and, and, uh, or, you know, that they felt any kind of way, maybe not have been, um, they didn't get that promotion. They didn't get that, you know, and it could have been completely legit on why they didn't, you know, but they jumped on that bandwagon. So, you know, it's unfortunate um, on that end. But I think if men really, you know, to your point, I think if men really look at it and see, you know, um, check their own behaviors and how they're wielding their uh, power, especially if they're doing something abusive. I mean, that's pretty cut and dry. You know, yes, you should be me too, if that's what you're doing. Yeah, but you know, one of the things that I think I've seen this happen, uh, you know, obviously, I've been working in management a long, right. long time, but um, there, there are a lot of people meet their spouses right. at work. And a lot yeah. of people. And I think that depending on if the, if 
when the person's not your spouse, mm-hmm. right? When the person is somebody that you're dating or or somebody that you're interested in and you're trying to spark up that conversation, you have to now double check that that advance is wanted, right? Or or is welcomed, right? right? And I think that that is is interest, interesting. And I always say, you know, I don't ever get my my honey where I'm making That's right, money. Right, so, right. Right. So I don't think that this is a smart move for, for, for people, but I do know people who have met at work. I know people who've gotten married as a result of working together. Um, I know people have fooled around and then that situation went way bad, like way bad. And now they're coming into work or they're calling in late or they're saying that they don't want to be there. I've seen that happen. Um, all of it just seems like a messy situation that I just don't want any parts does that, of. Does that, um, do those scenarios, um, you know, are they part of this Me Too movement or are they, are they shrapnel, you know, from the grenade of, of, of this movement and how far and wide it may, you know, it may spread into people's lives? Well, I think it, I, what I, my point is, is I think it can get yes. right. There's a little bit of a gray area, True. not that I'm diminishing the Me Too movement, because I think it's it, it's a very valid and powerful movement. And I think that there are definitely abuses that need to be called out. But I do also think that there's a bit of a gray where you could have somebody in a, a upper management position who wants to date somebody in a frontline mm-hmm. position or a lower position. Uh, perhaps it starts out as flirting. Perhaps at first the person doesn't see them as attractive and eventually grows an attraction for them or whatever Mm -hmm. happens. Uh, Perhaps they do have a physical relationship and it doesn't turn out too well, or maybe they're done with the relationship or perhaps they're cheating on their wives or husbands, which I've also seen in the Mm -hmm. workplace. Uh, And I won't name what company because I've been at many companies, but the thing is, is that all of those things have a grayness to the situation Mm -hmm. That if the wrong mix comes into that situation, it can explode into something that is career ending or jeopardizing of somebody's, you know, workspace. And so I I do think that although that I wouldn't call that part of the Me Too movement, I think that that some claims can be made that would be really great for HR to determine Mm -hmm what exactly is going on and could result in the end of employment for an individual because they chose to get their honey where they're making right. their money. Right, right, right. That should be rule. What number 747. Right. In your book of right, life. Right, okay. Right. Logical and convincing. Don't get your honey where That's you're making. Right. There's so many fish in the sea. Go fish elsewhere at another dock. Okay. Right. 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 Um, but, um, do you think that that what kind of what I've described have made has made men scared that there will be a victim of false oh, claim? Of or have you heard your friends say that? I mean, and, and, you know, I mean, anything that, you know, I think going into some of the other kind of questions on the topic here about, you know, consent and everything else. But the, I think the thing is, is that, you know, if if it's I think most men um would only operate in that in that realm if it's consensual, right? So, mm-hmm. um, so yeah. So to to feel like, um, you know, it was an agreed upon a consensual, 
you know, situation, whether it was flirting or anything much more. Um, and then for that to be potentially reversed on them. Uh, yeah, I've had, I've had cats definitely, um, you know, in some of our conversations, be very wary about them, about that. And, it, and what's also very interested in, interesting about that is that it varies by the level that that these you know that these cats are at so you know if they're if they're a president or ceo you know uh they think about it a certain way if they're a you know middle management they think about it a certain way if they're you know um and 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 you know and and you know not making judgments on anybody's level but you know, I've heard cats that are, you know, kind of frontline workers, like not really tripping off of it. Right. The whole yeah. thing. But I guarantee you that the, you know, the CEO, the VP, you know, the, the, you know, those kind of level, you know, C-suite level um, and upper level, you know, uh, positions, they're definitely thinking about it. Because if you think about who's being, you know, at least publicly taken down, those are the ones that, that have been, you know, that have been targeted. And maybe they've been targeted more than than kind of the your average guy, um, because one, they wielded a certain amount of power, which made it worse or that they, you know, they have so much more to lose. And and, the you know, the victim can make them, you know make them lose more in that type of situation. Yeah, no, I, I think that's really, you know, it, it, it's a good subject to talk about. I think there's so much more to, to, to kind of think about in that vein, but I, I did want to kind of bring up, bring it up um, as an opposite perspective yeah. to kind of um, the way that I think, you know, I've heard women really, really defend the situation and say, well, there's just no excuse for blah, right. blah, blah. And I, and I get it, but there's a real fear for every action that we take. There's, there's a reaction to it. Right. And, and, and wondering what that reaction is, um, you know, from males perspectives and just having some of the conversations that I've had with individuals about kind of how they feel. And especially when it really came to its, its real peak, mm -hmm. right. That I would, hear people, you know, just really being worried about, you know, re-examining, you know, um, there have been some famous uh, people recently in, in the black community that, you know, Russell Simmons, mm -hmm. that there's controversy around him. Art Kelly, definitely. That's a whole mess of yeah, a situation the there. And then, episode right Bill, there. and then you have Bill Cosby, which was the, you know, uh, just the disappointment, I think for, yeah, that just, we, we just, whew, that was a hard one too. So I, I just think kind of, um, to bring it back to kind of the subject of, of women's rights and, and what we're talking about today before we wrap up, it's just, I think so many things that I think women, we, we see some advancements, but we still think that there's, there's ways to go further, right? We, we, there's still, things that we need to do in the society to stop being pacified by small mm -hmm. wins. Cause I think we're really, we really always are like thankful that we got a little something, right. but until it's, until it's equal, I, I just think that there's still more to go. And, and I think that people who don't like people standing up for the fact that there's a further way to go. It, it just baffles me because it's like, 
why are we so, why do we object to equality? Why are we objecting to the fact that it should be like that anyway? Well, I think that I, you know, I think that that's obviously the, the subject of equality, um, across the board and especially as it pertains to women, um, is hard, hard fought against, um, by anybody who feels like they're losing something, you know, which is, which is absolutely, um, idiotic to me because if you put women in, you know, in the power that they deserve and that they, you know, that's equal to ours, then we make ourselves so much better. You know what I mean? And it, and it's, and it's, you know, just as a society. So I think that, you know, I, I think that we, the fight has to continue and, you know, as it continues, it, it, you know, it'll change form, it'll change faces, but, you know, but it, but it has to continue. Um, and, you know, I think for the sake of, um, definitely the topic about the notorious RBG, you know, um, in her honor, it has to continue. Um, so keep going. Yeah, so I, I just wanted to leave. I mean, we didn't talk too much about abortion rights. I think we stayed a little bit away from from that. Although, you know, I think there's something to say there. But Absolutely. in honor of RBG, I just I just want to kind of uh, leave you with uh, something that a quote that she said about abortion rights. She said, um, and it, it's obviously a, a it's it's a woman's body. So she said, this is a something central to a woman's life and to her dignity. It's a decision that she must make for herself. And when the government controls that decision for her, she's being treated as less than a fully adult human responsible for her own choices. So, I mean, all I can say is that it's so I'm so sad to see a trailblazer of and a titan of that magnitude that wasn't afraid, right? right. Despite all of the disappointment right. that she had in her life, five bouts of cancer, her husband died of cancer, um, and, and just just standing up and saying what she believed, regardless of kind of the outcome, doing it with grace and dignity. Um, her and Scalia were best That's of right. friends. They loved the opera. You know, she, seeing somebody on the other side of, 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 you know, he was very conservative. She was very liberal. And just being human and appreciating people for who they are, even if you had a difference of opinion. So I just kind of want to leave it there and just be so thankful that she graced us with her presence and she made such a difference for women. Um, And, you know, she's notorious, right? right? She's the notorious RBG. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you for this conversation. Yeah. And let's let's uh, let's raise the next one. Let's get the next RBG out there, because that's that's to me um, how her legacy and her memory is really honored is that we don't stop and that that we look forward to uh, the next Notorious RBG.